This June marks 19 years since God radically changed the trajectory of my life. At that point, I was approaching the senior year of high school, and I had my eyes firmly set on studying business with the help of a baseball scholarship. Both seemed like realistic tracks. I had uh, visits scheduled to various colleges, and various coaches were coming to see some of my baseball games. But there was one fateful night over at Park Tudor High School that changed all of that. It was during a, a summer basketball game. Wasn't particularly good at defense, but one thing that I found I could do was to take charges. In other words, if you're not very fast, you can just stand in the way of the other guys and let them run you over and get the ball back for your team. That was my little hack that I found. And one of the things you do when you take a charge, the guy hits you and you get knocked down, and the idea is you sort of push off with your hands so that you don't bruise or break your tailbone. Well, this particular night, I went to push off, and the guy that was charging me stepped on my foot. And so instead of pushing off, my foot was pinned down, and my hand just went down, and I broke my wrist. Now, there's a lot of consequences that came from that, but it does turn out that if you're a pitcher, having a broken wrist is kind of a bad injury to have. You're out of commission for a while. Uh, it turns out I also broke maybe the slowest healing bone in the entire human body. So I was immobile for the entire summer and the entire fall, and by the time that I could do really anything athletic again, it was the first week of basketball practice. It was not how I intended my summer and fall to go. And by the time basketball had started, all the baseball scholarships I was in the running for had been given out. I was out of luck there. And all of a sudden, the schools that I'd been wanting to go to for business were now cost prohibitive. Everything changed in that charge I tried to take and as the guy stepped on my foot. So if I shorten a really long story, I found myself that next fall by the clear an unmistakable direction of God on the campus of a Bible college. I knew for sure I was supposed to be there, and I had very little understanding of why I was supposed to be there. The biggest problem was they had nothing available to study that I was interested in studying. And yet I knew I was supposed to be there, so I thought, I'm going to take the broadest route possible, study everything I can to keep as many options open as possible. So I double majored in systematic theology and in education, and I minored in kinesiology. I want to keep as many options open as possible. I go to seminary, that's great. Go to teach, that's great. Go be a physical therapist, I got a path towards that. Go be an athletic trainer. I can just keep the options open here. I don't know what God is doing. All of that led to, upon graduation, getting a job as a PE teacher back at Bethesda Christian Schools. It quickly changed to becoming a Bible teacher. Through that, God shifted and changed my desires and led us into pastoral ministry. So in a very real sense, I don't think I would be here today if I wouldn't have broken my wrist 19 years ago at Park Tudor High School. It was only a matter of inches, but I really think that if that guy wouldn't have stepped on my foot, I probably wouldn't be preaching this sermon this morning. The point I'm making is that God was sovereign over that. He was fully in control, even of the tiniest details. And of course, at that time, I didn't see it. In fact, I was very angry about the fact that I was missing out on all these things I'd planned for my life that summer. But in the rearview mirror, I can see it pretty clearly, and it's pretty amazing to see how God had worked. 
And usually that's how God's sovereignty works. In the rearview mirror, it's really clear, and looking at the windshield, it's really unclear what he's doing many times. So if I can point us back to the book of Genesis, chapters 45, 46, and 47, what these chapters serve to do is give us a rearview mirror look into God's sovereignty and how he's been working in Joseph's life and in his family's life and how that changes our life. The main thing I want you to see from these three chapters is simply this. God's sovereignty is great news and it inspires worship. Two things about God's sovereignty. It's, it's great news that God is sovereign, and the fact that he is sovereign inspires worship from us. Those will be our two points. God's sovereignty is great news. God's sovereignty inspires worship. Start with the first. God's sovereignty is great news. Sovereignty is kind of one of these big words. If you're not familiar with Christianity or the Bible, maybe you're not familiar with hearing that. It's simply to say this. Sovereignty is an attribute of God. It's who he is, it's not what he does. And there, there's many definitions of his sovereignty, but one simple one that I'll, I'll pull out, I found from theologian Greg Allison. Here's how he defined it. He said this, God's sovereignty is God's work of directing the creation toward its divinely planned end. God's work of directing the creation towards its divinely planned end. And any time you get into conversations around God's sovereignty, it opens up a whole host of questions, basically saying, well, how sovereign is God? You might ask, does he meticulously control every decision of every human in all of history? Is his hand literally guiding every single dust particle, every single raindrop, every single butterfly? Or is it more general? where he sort of takes our choices and he's like one of those jugglers and he's juggling six different balls at the same time and your choices is kind of tossing him a ball and he somehow as a maestro catches it and keeps the whole thing going and he makes it look easy. Is it more like a recipe where your choices bring him the ingredients and he somehow finds a way to make a really good stew out of it every single time? There's all kinds of ways we could ask this and maybe there are a few ways I would start to answer those questions. I'd say this, God's sovereignty doesn't mean, it does not mean that you're a robot or a puppet in any way. That might be called that exhaustive determinism, if you're familiar with that term. No, your choices really matter. And God isn't the one who is the author of evil or causing evil or causing you or anyone to sin. So, so God just knows what's going to happen. Well, no, it's more than that. He's not merely looking down history with full knowledge of what you're going to do. It's, it's actually more than that. As we're going to start to understand what this means. But we also have to recognize that as human beings, we naturally want control of our lives. We don't like it when somebody else has control. So to say that God is sovereign over our life, he actually has control over our life, is not a popular message. And in the West, in our culture particularly in the post-enlightenment era, this objection is very much heightened, where we demand either God's in control or I'm free to choose what I want. We demand an either-or. It's, it's, it's a Western way of thinking. Either God controls it or I'm free. But the Bible actually challenges our culture. And rather than saying an either-or, where God's in control or I'm free, he said say both-and. God is fully in control, and yet I'm fully responsible for my decisions. 
Now, I wonder, as we're in June, what's sometimes referred to as Pride Month, if there are some of you who want the Bible to challenge our culture on sexual ethics. I hope you want the Bible to do that. You should want the Bible to do that. And you should also want the Bible to challenge our culture with our views of human freedom and God's sovereignty and let the Bible cut against that as well so that the Bible is the source of all truth and our authority in all of life. Now, if I could take you back to Genesis 45 and start to show you where this is at here, and then we'll, we'll work outward to other portions of Scripture from there. Start in verse 5 with me. Here's what we read of chapter 45 and verse 5. Joseph is speaking, and he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then drop down to verse 7. Here's what we read. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And now notice what that doesn't say. It doesn't say, you sent me here, but God found a way to use it. It doesn't say, well, God knew what you guys were going to do and adapted his plan to make it work. No, they're fully responsible for their bad choices, and God was ultimately sovereign over them. You might say that they did the sinning, but God did the sending. God sovereignly sent Joseph, and his brothers were responsible for their sin. It's a both and. As I start to say that, I want to speak to a couple of different groups who are going to hear this message in a different way. Some of you love any talk of the sovereignty of God. You think it's so important that we get that right, and you think clearly about that. And sometimes loving theology and the sovereignty of God, you use as an excuse to not love deeply. It's right to think clearly, but let me remind you that love is the mark of maturity. And that knowledge can puff up, love builds up, so let's not get our priorities backwards there. Others of you are going to hear this topic brought up, and you're confused by it, you've been confused by it for years, for decades, and you're tempted to check out right now and think about what you're doing this afternoon. I want to encourage you to engage your brain today. Stick with me. I know that this is complicated and we can't fully understand it, but we're going to try and take this truth and put it on the bottom shelf where it can be understood and not merely understood, but applied to your life. So stick with me. There's going to be others of you this morning that are really uncomfortable whenever you hear the sovereignty of God talked about from the pulpit. There's a whole host of reasons that that might be a difficult topic for you, one that you kind of recoil at. And I simply want to ask you to do your best to come to these passages with an open mind and let the scriptures define your thinking and how you proceed through this, not merely rely on your impulses of what you think can and can't be right. So for all of us, there's something that is is maybe a little easier, a little tougher in these conversations, but we want to go to the scriptures together. Let me start to show this from some other scriptures. In principle, we see this in the book of Proverbs, actually, just the general idea of it, the both end. God is fully sovereign. We're fully responsible. Starting in verse 1 of Proverbs 16, the plans of the heart belong to a man, 
but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then drop down to verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You've got a plan for what you're going to do. You're intending to do this, but God is sovereign over it, both in your speaking and in your actions, Proverbs 16. Or if we would jump ahead to the New Testament, you would see the both and right next to each other, Acts chapter 4. This is speaking uh, of Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now notice that there's, there's people there. There's Herod, there's Pilate, there's Gentiles, there's the Jews. They're acting, they're responsible for their actions. And yet what does Peter say in the sermon? They did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. God had planned it, and his hand brought it to completion. Or you could look at Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 11. He puts the both, God is fully sovereign, and you're totally responsible right next to each other. Here's what Jesus says. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Sounds like God is fully sovereign over who comes and who knows, right? And then the very next verse, Jesus says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the Bible keeps saying it's, it's a both end. God is fully sovereign, and you're totally responsible. And I could go on and on with, with more, just layer passages on. For time's sake, I'm not going to do that. But you could think of Ephesians 1, where it says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or you could go to Amos. He says that... Uh, this rhetorical question, does disaster come to the city unless the Lord causes it, unless the Lord brings it? That's what Amos says. Or even, even you go back to Jesus where he walks on the water, or he's asleep in the boat, and he gets woken up, and he speaks, and the sea obeys. And the disciples say, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He commands them. You say, Justin, how can it be that God is both fully sovereign and I'm totally responsible? This just seems confusing. How does all this go together? There's a word for it that we use, or at least theologians use. Maybe you don't use it frequently. It's called antinomy. And antinomy is this. It's not a real contradiction, but an apparent contradiction. It looks like a contradiction from my vantage point, but I don't have enough knowledge and resources to resolve it. A good example is from modern physics, where light sometimes behaves as a wave and sometimes as a particle. Say, is light a wave? With light waves, you've heard of that. Light particles, you've heard of that. Is it, is it either or? No, it's both and. How do I know? Well, you don't have the knowledge to resolve this right now. Maybe one day you'll gain that, but we presently don't. It's similar with God. He has the knowledge in his infinite mind what, to resolve what we in our finite minds cannot put together. So it is true that God is fixing everything according to his predetermined plan, not despite our choices, but somehow through them. Now, if you want to dig a little deeper on this, the very best thing in all the world you can do is go back to the scriptures and read other passages here. So let me just give you a couple that would be wise for you to go back to. And I would really encourage you to read these with a couple of friends, read them in advance, Make notes, come together, talk about it, and grow in your discipleship together. Start in the book of Job. Go to chapter 38 
and read about five chapters or so to the end of the book. 38 to 42 is a great place to start. And when you finish that, go to the book of Isaiah. Go to chapter 45, read 45 and 46. Two good chapters to read right next to each other, seeing the sovereignty of God placed right next to the responsibility of man. Then you're going to flip to the New Testament, and I want you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 in a row. Because what's really interesting about Romans 9, 10, 11 is Romans 9 seems to be about the highest picture of the sovereignty of God you could get. It says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. And then you get to Romans 10, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then you get to Romans 11 and get to the very end. That was actually our call to worship this morning, reading Romans 11. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who's given a gift that he should be repaid? I don't understand all this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Like, yeah, they're side by side and they bring us to worship. If you want to go beyond biblical uh, text, let me give you two quick books. One very skinny book, 120 pages, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Great little book on this topic. Be worth reading and uh, discussing with a friend. If you want a bigger book, I would also recommend this to you. This is, this is a fat one. You can see this. Uh, it's by John Piper, and it's the book Providence. Now, don't be scared of a, a really big book. I, I was scared of this one for a bit. And this year, I started reading this with a couple of friends. And all we do is we read like 50 or 60 pages a month, and we just say, hey, over the course of a year, we'll finish this thing. That's not a quick read, but it's not a hard read. It's not like an academic, dense book. You'd be surprised how accessible this is. Um, start with Scripture always, and if you want to go to the others, those I think are helpful resources as well. But notice this. What we said at the beginning was not merely that God is sovereign, but that his sovereignty is great news. And I think you see in Genesis 45 through 47, not merely his sovereignty, but that his sovereignty is great news. Look back at verse 5. Why is it that God was sovereign? What does he accomplish? It's to preserve life. That's great news. Verse 7 of chapter 45, God sent him, he was sovereign, to preserve a remnant and keep alive many survivors. And then you drop down to chapter 46 and verse 2. This is Jacob receives this news. He's previously been commanded not to go to Egypt. So he's wondering, what am I supposed to do? Should I go to Egypt where Joseph is? I thought, God, you said not to go to Egypt, so now I'm confused. Is this actually a good thing? Here's what God comes to him and says in 46.2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You catch what he's saying to him? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm sovereign over making you this great nation. I'm actually going with you. I didn't just plan it. I'm actively working with you in it. You see, in the rearview mirror, Joseph and his family sees the sovereignty of God is great news. You could see them around the campfire saying, boy, we'd never survive this famine if God hadn't sovereignly sent Joseph ahead. We most certainly would have died. It's great news that God was sovereign over that, even in our bad choices. 
You could see them around the campfire laughing, saying, man, we never would have been reconciled to each other had God not sovereignly brought us to Joseph. We'd have never found him. We sent him off to another land. Boy, it's great news that God was sovereign over that. You could see them as they look out over their fields and over their flocks saying, we'd never get the choice land in Egypt had God not sovereignly sent Joseph ahead and made plans for us before we got there. It's great news that God is sovereign. So friend, what this means for you is you need to recognize in your life that God's sovereignty is great news. His plans are infinitely better than your plans. And he's infinitely wiser in bringing them to completion than you are. So if that's true in principle, then what does that mean in practice for us? How do we take these huge truths about God and make them transformational and operative in our life? How do we do that? That brings us to our second point. God's sovereignty inspires worship. God's sovereignty inspires worship. And what I want to do is I want to look at this in each of the characters. We'll start in Jacob, and then we'll move down to the brothers, and then to Joseph from there, and sort of see uh, three, three sub-points of how God's sovereignty inspires worship in the lives of these characters. Jacob would see the purposes of God in his discouragement. In fact, the whole episode seems to have sent Jacob into this deep depression. He's very, very discouraged. In chapter 37, if we go way back, when he found out about Joseph's supposed death, he refuses comfort from his kids. He's weeping violently. He says, my soul is going down to death in mourning. Then in chapter 42, his sons come back, and Jacob says to them, you've bereaved me, you've robbed me of my children. Everything is going against me. Maybe that kind of statement actually describes how you feel this morning. Like, yeah, I, I get that kind of deep discouragement that Jacob was feeling, where I say, everything is going against me. I refuse to be comforted. Let's pick up in chapter 45, verse 25. Let's read it together. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and told him, Joseph is still alive. And he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he'd said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey all that he had, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. There's that phrase in there. It said his heart became numb. It's like he couldn't believe what happened. This isn't possible. Joseph is dead. But he saw the action of God, and it said his spirit revived. God has done something amazing here, he says. And he goes to offer sacrifices. Now, if you try and place yourself in Jacob's shoes here, is he processing everything that's going on? It's, it's really hard to know. Maybe you can relate in a small way where somebody brings you this like earth-shattering news and your mind is going just a million miles an hour. And like, am I processing everything in this moment? No, I don't think so. 
I lose sight of a few things. You, you almost wonder in Jacob's life, had he been so consumed with his bad circumstances that he'd lost sight of the purposes of God? Can't that happen to us so easily? Our eyes get so fixed on the bad circumstances right in front of us that it's just really difficult, maybe impossible at times it feels, to see the purposes of God. And yet Jacob takes God at his word. He worships by offering sacrifices and starting to go down to Egypt. Because these are really simple steps of obedience. I just want to recognize that in a deep, deep season of discouragement, God's sovereignty inspiring worship often looks like the simplest and most basic forms of obedience. It's really hard to get myself out of bed and get to church. That's worship. It's really hard to attend community group. That's worship. You're trusting God by going, even when it's really hard. It's really difficult to take this book and open it. That's worship. That's what we see Jacob doing. Simple steps. Offer my sacrifices. Start moving towards Egypt. Did he understand all God was doing? Not a chance. Not a chance. But he said, I'm going to take a small step in the right direction of following Jesus today. I wonder if you're in a similar spot to him and you say, Justin, I, I see this in the passage, but I can't help but asking how could God be using this cancer in my life right now? How can you say that God was sovereign over the death of my child, over the abuse that my grandkids have suffered, over my wrongful termination, over my ongoing depression, over this financial hardship? How? Friend, I don't know. I know you don't know either. None of us do. But you've got to understand, I just encourage you, that in Christian theology, I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer much of the time. Because if I knew every purpose of God in every action of God, then I would be God. But he's God, and I'm not. And if he's big enough to be angry at over the circumstances I'm presently seeing, then he's also big enough to have good, sovereign purposes in all of those circumstances as well. Remember this, he never calls you to understand everything he's doing. He does call you to trust him and to follow him. So there's a lot that we don't know, but is there anything we do know? We do. We do know that your discouragement isn't wasted. God's not merely permitting it. He's actually using it positively to do something in your life. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 4. Remember, this is the Paul who was beaten within an inch of his life many, many times. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was shipwrecked and spent a day and a night on the open sea. And here's how he would write about discouragement and what God is doing in it and suffering in our lives. Here's what Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed 
but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction. Now notice, light and momentary in Paul's life is not how we think of light and momentary. Like he got the real deal on suffering. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says it's accomplishing something. It's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. It's not just collateral on the side of the road. God is actively working in and through it. And friend, let me just tell you, in the midst of your discouragement and your suffering, that a God who's not sovereign over that discouragement and a God who's not suffering, sovereign over that suffering isn't worthy of your worship at all because he wouldn't be able to do anything with it. He would just be a powerless bystander giving well wishes and a couple of flowers that are going to die in a week. But a God who's actually sovereign and actually working in it is actually worthy of worship. And Jacob shows us that. But there are other characters in the story. Let's turn to the brothers. God's sovereignty inspires worship from them through their sin. It seems odd to say that God's sovereignty inspires worship in the brother's sin, but it's true There they see the purposes of God. Not that he's causing their sin, but he's working through it to accomplish his purposes. 45.5, go back to that again with me. Joseph says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. But these guys knew what it was to sin and to sin in really big ways. They knew what it was to have massive guilt in their life. Massive shame in their life. Maybe some of you have read uh, Jim Collins, business guru's book, and he talks about setting up big, hairy, audacious goals. BHAGs, he calls those. You got to set up big goals in your life. Well, these guys knew how to commit big, hairy, audacious sins. The kind you don't want to talk about ever, much less at church. And in chapter 44, they were confronted with their sin. They acknowledged it, they repented, they turned away. That's what God calls us to do with our sin, to acknowledge it, to confess it to him, to repent and turn from it, seeking forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's the the core of what the Bible's telling us to do. But even after they become forgiven, after they receive that forgiveness, they still struggle internally. They're distressed with themselves. They're angry with themselves. That's why Joseph says, guys, don't be distressed, don't be angry, because The ongoing guilt they have is intense. It's as if Jesus says, guys, look, guys, guys, look, you're forgiven, like all the way forgiven. Your sins are at the bottom of the ocean. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. But more than that, God was using you, even in your sin, to accomplish his purpose. Is this an argument that would be used to excuse sin and say, well, go live however you want? No, of course not. That's not what the Bible says. Don't be silly about it. But God does redeem our sin. You need to recognize how mind-blowing this is. That God didn't cause his brothers to sin. 
but he didn't use their sin to accomplish his purpose. God didn't cause Potiphar's wife to sin, but he did use her sin to accomplish his purpose. If we zoom all the way ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ, God didn't cause those Jews to sin. He didn't cause those Roman leaders to sin, but he did use their sin to accomplish his purpose. So that when Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things means all things. It means that God is sovereignly working through righteous choices and unrighteous choices to accomplish his purposes. <laughs> how does this work? Like a, the righteous choice part is fine, but how is he working through the unrighteous part? Now, let me give you an example. Imagine you have a young child who wants the cookies that are being baked, and they reach into the oven, and they grab the hot plate. The, not the plate, the tray. And they hang on to it. It burns their hand very, very badly. Well, Christ's heart as a parent would be moved with compassion on the child. He's not saying, you idiot, why would you do that again? I'm so ashamed of you. That's not what a parent does. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. It has to hurt so bad. Let me get some healing rags there. He's moved with compassion. And he also relates to the child. In a sense saying, I know what it's like to think that you know best. To think that your parents are just fun stoppers that won't let you have the cookies at the best time. Not because he sinned like that. But Hebrews 5, 2 is, is just beautiful verse. It says, let me read it to you. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That's us. Since he himself is beset with weakness. In becoming a human, he can deal gently with us. So in our sin, he relates compassionately and gently to us. But he also relates sovereignly to us in that. And just imagine for a moment, he says, well, I could have stopped this four-year-old from doing that, but I'm using it because through that pain, you'll learn to obey your parents. And, and maybe that's off-putting a little bit because you say, well, that's a lot of pain for that gain. Couldn't it have been accomplished in a different way? Well, imagine then that you take your child to the hand doctor. And they see the burn is actually so bad, so deep, that the hand has to be amputated. But in the process of being with that doctor, you have a chance to tell them about Jesus. And that doctor gets saved for an eternity in heaven and no longer an eternity in hell. Would you then say it was good that God was using it in that way? And if you're still not convinced, well, couldn't God have saved them in a different way? Imagine this child grows up and goes to college and meets a roommate who's in the middle of deconstructing and is on the verge of walking away from their faith. As your child tells about this incident, is able to tell them, well, here's how God strengthened me and sustained me through all this difficulty, and I saw his good hand even in the midst of my suffering. And the roommate is persuaded that God actually is good and can be trusted even in difficult circumstances continues following Jesus and raises kids who are in the church and 
hear the gospel from a young age and are sent out as missionaries. And just imagine those kids are sent to South Asia to people who've never heard about Jesus and a revival breaks out in an unreached people group and 10,000 people get saved in part because God allowed that disobedient choice as a four-year-old. Would the sin and the suffering be worth it at that point? You see these moral calculations start to hurt your head and kind of like compress in ways that are really unhelpful to think about a little bit. But the point is they should make you glad that you're not God. I don't want to have to do that math. You're not qualified for his job and neither am I. Testimony of scripture is clear that God is sovereignly working in all things, including our sin for his good and for our good that he would be glorified. You say, Pastor, I think this makes light of the sin and the suffering in my life. It seems to minimize it, do a cost analysis of sorts. You say, no, no, friend, the cross actually proves otherwise. That God's own son would see your sin and your suffering as so significant that he would have to come to this earth and die a brutal death and suffer worse than any of us would suffer actually elevates how significant that is, that God would take that action for you. But maybe on the flip side, you've been slow to see his sovereign purposes in all things. And the response of worship is to fall at his feet and to say, God, I see that you're working even in my sin. And I realize it doesn't make me passive. It calls me to action. And in our third point, we're going to see the call to action here in Joseph's life. So God's sovereignty inspires worship in Jacob's discouragement, in the brother's sin, but in Joseph's stewardship. If Joseph were reflective over his situation as he's in Egypt, he might be saying something like this. He might say, God sent me here. God has been with me in all circumstances. He might be saying, God made me ruler over Egypt with a specific purpose. He might be thinking, to whom much has been given, much is required. Much has been given to me, much will be required of me. So what were the action steps required of Joseph? Well, first off, to interpret the dreams rightly. First in prison and then of Pharaoh. Then he knows that this famine's coming. So the action required, the stewardship required of Joseph, it's to devise a wise plan. How are we going to navigate this famine? And not merely to devise the plan, but to execute the plan. Because people start to lose their mind when they don't have any food. They're saying, Joseph, what are we going to do about this? Part of Joseph's stewardship was I was raised up not merely to help Egypt, but to send these wagons and food and money and clothes back home so I could get my family here because God is providing in that way. To make arrangements in the best land. There's all kinds of action required in Joseph's stewardship, right? You see all of that. So sometimes people take this idea of the sovereignty of God and say, well, it denies the need for action in pursuing holiness and in fervent prayer and in bold evangelism and strategic mission efforts. And that's simply not the case at all. One passage that helps me on that is Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. It's on the screen here, and you see it this way. He says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God like how God is fully sovereign and I'm totally responsible. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, 
The stuff that is God's business, leave to God. But the stuff you've been told to do, go do. There was a, a famous theologian from Princeton, A.A. Hodge was his name, and he lived about 100 years ago, and so I sort of paraphrased what he said on this, but here's his comment. Does God know the day that you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Well, then why do you eat? To live. Well, what happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? He says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for your living. Joseph understood God had put him at a specific place in Egypt for a specific purpose, and he boldly took action. And so if I can just take that and fast forward to our lives, Acts 17, 26 says that God has appointed the actual place that you live and how long you live there for a specific reason. That means that the house you live in isn't random, the apartment you live in isn't random, your roommates aren't random, your neighbors aren't random. It's all ordained by God so that people would find him and worship him. And you've been placed there to reach them. So boldly take action in view of that. It means that there's a stewardship for you, that you have specific dollars entrusted to you from specific employers with a specific purpose. Namely, that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth and that a people from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation would hear who Jesus is and believe in him and worship him. And we honor God by recognizing he's sovereign over all of that. We recognize that God is sovereign over your personality. You have a specific personality from specific parents that God has given to you for a specific reason. That you leverage what God has given to you for his mission. It means you have specific spiritual gifts specifically given to you by the Holy Spirit to build up Christ's church. You need to act on those. So it means that nothing in your life is random. That's what I'm saying. Every conversation you're in, every red light that you get stuck at, every person you meet at the community pool, is it a little bit overwhelming to think about it that way? Maybe if it depends on you, then it is. But it doesn't depend on you. That God is sovereignly working in you and through you and has promised to be with you as you go. So ask for his guidance and boldly take action just as Joseph did. And if all that's not enough, let me just wrap up with one final thought that sort of points us ahead to Christ. And you see the beauty of the whole story that could only be set up by a fully sovereign God. The son, Joseph, seemed to be dead. But somehow, he came back from the dead. And it seemed too good to be true. So he revealed himself to his brothers. They didn't recognize him, but he persisted, offering proof of his identity, offering forgiveness to them, offering full reconciliation to them, no longer treating them as slaves or servants, but as brothers. And then the resurrected son was elevated to sit at the right hand of the king and lead his family, his people, to dwell in the blessed land. 
Tell me that's not remarkable to see, the connection to Christ. This only happens when you have a God who is fully sovereign. Guys, it's great news that he's sovereign. It inspires us to worship because he is sovereign. We fall at his feet and offer every aspect of our lives as a living sacrifice. Let's pray.